and welcome to the How Not to Screw Up Your Kids podcast. So pour yourself a cuppa, find a comfy seat and enjoy the conversation. This is episode five and today we are talking about bedtime routines and sleep. And I know this is something that I get asked about a lot because sleep is so important, not only for our children, but also ourselves. So I want to start by saying that I am not a sleep specialist. So I won't be offering advice about controlled crying, the merits or non-merits of co-sleeping. I'll adopt my typical approach of compassionate parenting. So what are the emotions behind your child's behavior and how I can help you respond more compassionately yet within your family boundaries. So we're going to look at how do we create and establish good bedtime routines. We're going to look also at children who are currently struggling to fall asleep on their own and what strategies we might want to use with those. And then I'm going to do a specific section looking particularly at teenagers and the teen years because they present their own unique challenges. So I want to start with Why is sleep important anyway? Why are we even having this conversation? Why is it important that we encourage our children to get the right amount of sleep? Well, sleep has two functions. The first is that it restores our body. So it's an opportunity for our body to repair itself, repair damage that may have been done, as well as giving muscles opportunities to restretch, to rebalance and repair themselves. And it's also a time when hormones are secreted. So it will be our children's growth hormones, as well as those that are part of their ever adapting and changing physical form. So it's really important that we have sleep so that our body can repair itself. And it's also really important that we sleep because it's an opportunity for our brain to consolidate its learning. And I like to think, so this is just my little analogy, I I quite like I'm quite a visual thinker and this helps me sort of explain to children why it's so important to sleep and it's how I imagine what's going on in my own brain. So I imagine this sort of slightly old-fashioned librarian who might be wearing tweed and glasses and hair up and pushing sort of one of those old-fashioned trolleys that is completely filled to bursting with books and she's putting all the books back on the right shelves. And in essence, that's really what's happening is that our brain is consolidating what it's learnt, consolidating the neuronal connections and getting them all filed away and ready for us to use when we need them again. So that's why sleep is important. These functions are really important. But I don't want you to get too sort of hung up or worried at this stage if your child isn't having the right amount of sleep that they need right now. I'm hoping by the end of listening to this podcast, you'll feel so much better and ready and equipped to know what's the one thing that you need to tackle first for your family. So what I want to talk about now is what I call bedroom hygiene. And it's not about keeping bedrooms dirt free or constantly clean, but it's much more to do with the environment that your child sleeps in. So for example, if you were going to go to a sleep clinic, one of the things that they talk about is very much this idea about the environment, because A bedroom should be a place that is conducive of sleep. It should be an environment that helps our children unwind, relax, and then fall asleep relatively quickly. So what I would just simply ask you to do is, how does your child's bedroom look? Now, this isn't about how tidy it is, 
but about its function within the room. And we're going to look at this very specifically with some of the challenges that we have with teenagers. But really, you want to make sure that the environment is equipped enough and ready for your child to go to sleep. So it should be a tech free zone. I very, very strongly believe that our children's bedrooms should be free of all tech and devices. I also believe that our bedrooms as adults should also be completely free of tech and devices too, but particularly our children. So there is absolutely no issue with having books that our children can read and maybe some toys for younger children that they may use as a way of winding down in preparation for going to sleep. But it shouldn't be a bedroom that is very busy with things that are specific to play, but should be much more about being conducive to sleep. And as I say, there'll be more on that later when we look at it specifically for teens. Before we start looking at the specific situations and the strategies that I suggest, I want just really just to remind you of some real basic rules that we need to keep in mind when we're looking at making changes or establishing new routines in any shape or form, and particularly for sleep. The first is that we need to be consistent. What we say are the rules today should be the rules tomorrow, the day after, next week, and next month. That isn't to say that we can't change rules. It can't doesn't mean that we can't be adaptable, but we should be consistent in the application of rules. We also need to be really clear with our children what our expectations are. We should be communicating this in advance. Our children should understand and know what the routine is going to look like, what bedtime routine is going to look like, and what might be the consequences should our children not comply or what we more typically see, faff around before actually doing what we ask them to do. And there'll be more on that on another episode when we're looking specifically at how to encourage our children to do more of what we'd like them to. So be consistent, be clear of expectations. The third one is be united. We need, when we are co-parenting in the same home, we need to be united in what we say to our children about bedtime, how we implement things. Now we have our own personal styles and we'll be looking at specifically in the next episode is looking at parenting styles. We have our own styles, but in terms of the consistent application of the rules and being clear with expectations, we should both be singing from the same hymn sheet. If we are in a scenario where we're co-parenting, but we're co-parenting in different households because we're separated or divorced or we're no longer with our partner, then be consistent and be clear about the expectations in your home And to be clear that the rules in your home may well be different to the rules in another home or even when they go to visit grandparents or aunties or uncles or friends. But it's about being clear what the rules are in your home. And then the fourth and final one is plan, plan, plan. Uh, That's not only how are you going to implement things, but what will you do if your child does X, Y or Z? The more you plan the more you think in advance of your responses and how you're going to deal with these things, the better the implementation is. And what I would say is if you are currently a parent that is struggling with with a situation with your child in terms of sleep, then I would much rather you take a little bit longer, 
listen to this podcast, re-listen to it, have conversations, start making plans, then jumping in, implementing something that is really not being thought through. And then of course, you're not going to see any changes. There's going to be no impact. It's much better to spend a bit of time thinking it through and working out how to implement it and you'll get much more success. And what I certainly would say is if you are looking at making changes, weekends are usually a great time to start. Unless you're working, your work pattern is that you're busier at the weekend. It just usually means at the weekend, you don't have the initial stresses, the additional stresses of a school day or having to be at particular places at particular times generally. And it's generally an opportunity that if you and your partner need to catch up on some sleep, because of what you're doing with the implementation, you've got that opportunity and it gives you a couple of days to kind of get that set into place. So let's have a look at what do we do? How do we help children who need us to stay with them until they fall asleep? Now, these children don't really know how to self-soothe. So this may be a child that needs you to lie down with them, needs you to hold their hand or needs you to sleep with them. Or it may well be a child that wakes up in the middle of the night, comes through to your bedroom, and then you either have to take them back to their bedroom or they stay with you until they fall asleep. So with these children, what we really need to be doing is helping them find their own ways to self-soothe. So this might be a particular cuddly, a favourite cloth, a breathing technique, a practice of reading or looking through books until they're naturally tired and can drift off themselves. So remember, we are teaching life skills here. And if we want long-term fixes, we have to do the work and work up steadily. So if you are at one end where you are having to currently lie in bed with your child, whether it's in your bed or their bed, until they fall asleep, let's not expect overnight changes. We need to do the prep work. And one of the ways that I try to think of this is an analogy that I'd like you to sort of think about is this idea of we have step ladders. We use step ladders to take us from somewhere at the bottom to somewhere that we want to be at the top. So when we're looking at changing patterns with our children, whether it's looking at sleep, whether we're encouraging them to be more confident, we're looking at goal setting. What we're really trying to do is take our child from the bottom rung of the ladder all the way up to the top. We don't get there in one massive stride. We get there by taking small steps. So if we have got our child currently in that particular situation where they need us to be with them until they fall asleep, let's recognize that what we need to actually do as we help them is we need to start giving them tools and strategies that help them find ways to soothe and to be able to fall asleep on their own So we're trying to give them the tools at the same time as we're beginning to slowly edge ourselves away and withdraw ourselves as the soothing mechanism. So we have to do both of these at the same time and we need to go at our child's pace. Now, some might say that that's slightly pandering and, you know, we should just go cold turkey and actually just leave them and they'll just get on and they'll realise soon enough. And that may well be something that works for some people. But in my view, it doesn't really equip our children and can sometimes, particularly for children that may have a tendency to be a little bit more worried and a little bit more busy brain, it can also create some anxieties and some worries that 
don't need to be there. We just want to make sure that we give them the tools and the strategies themselves. So if you've got a child that you're having to fall asleep with at the moment, then the first step may be that you continue to lie with them. But just before they drift off, you then leave and you come back and check in on them every five minutes after that. And then once they're able to do that, then maybe you lie with them for a little bit, you have a little chat, but then you leave before they start drifting off. And what we're trying to do is is in small steps begin to remove ourselves. It may be that you hold their hand for a little while and then you leave. So it's really looking at ways that we can begin to remove ourselves, but also equip our children with particular strategies and one of the strategies I've talked about that helps with the breathing techniques is one that we covered in a previous episode so if you want access to my free resources you need to head over to drmaryhan.com forward slash library in exchange for your email you'll have access to a resource library with all of the free resources for all of the various different podcasts and there is a specific breathing technique there that is a hand breathing exercise and that can be a really good starting point when you've got a child who finds it difficult to self-soothe and finds it difficult to fall asleep at night it's helping them practice that particular strategy during the day during the night together so that they begin practicing that as you're with them and helping them fall asleep And then as you begin to withdraw yourself, they continue to use that strategy when you're not with them. So how do we start these things? So if we've got a child who's finding it difficult to sleep alone, then it's a case of starting off by sitting your child down and explaining that you're going to help them with their sleep, that you've noticed that they find it hard to fall asleep on their own. And maybe that's because they find it quite scary or just it's so lovely and comforting to have sort of mummy or daddy there. So we're just having a normal conversation about this. And then what we're going to do is come up with a plan together with our child about how we're going to slowly ease yourself out of the need to stay with them all the way through. And in exchange for that, because you're not going to be spending so much time with them in the evening, helping them fall asleep, it means that you've got more of your evening back to do the things that you would normally do. And as a result, it means that you're going to be more available during the day to do things with them. So let me explain this a little better, really. I'm not sure I did a good job of explaining that. I'm a real believer in helping our children understand consequences and natural consequences as much as possible. So what we're really trying to communicate to our child without getting angry, without getting frustrated, but for the time that it takes you to stay with your child until they fall asleep, that eats into the time that you would ordinarily be preparing your own dinner, maybe relaxing or doing things that you might need to do yourself downstairs. So a natural consequence of the, let's say, 20 minutes, half an hour, an hour that you spend with a child who's struggling to fall asleep because you're yo-yoing up and down or they're in and out of their bedroom, it's got to be sort of made up somewhere. And it might be that there are some jobs that you would have ordinarily done in the evening that you have to sort of push to the next morning. What we're really trying to teach our child and help them to understand is if we're able to help them and they're able to fall asleep on their own, then we've bought back that time. So we don't spend an hour up and down in their bedrooms trying to get them to go to sleep, which means the things that we were pushing back to the next morning can be done that evening, which means in the morning we're fresh 
and that next day we have that time. So it's really being able to help our child understand that we're doing this because it's helpful to everybody. And in exchange for the progress that we make in that, in terms of getting to sleep on on our own, we're able to get back lots of lovely time together to be doing other things. So that's what I would suggest doing with a child who's struggling to fall asleep at night because they're finding it difficult to self-soothe. I want to talk about something that is slightly different when we've got a child who's struggling to fall asleep at night because they've got a busy brain. Now, your child might tell you they've got a busy brain or they may just say that they just can't switch off. These are the children that are in and out of their bedrooms quite a lot. And you probably have an instinct that they are worrying or imagining all sorts of things. So they're finding it difficult to switch off. Now, with these children, what we really want to do is focus on helping them find ways of calm using breathing techniques. And again, go to the free library, drmaryhan.com forward slash library, and you'll have access to those. But we might also want to help our children by introducing ways that they can unpack their worries, their busy brains or their chatter downstairs. So when they go upstairs to their bedroom, They've parked their worries. And there are two of my most favourite ways of doing this. And I'm going to explain these to you. And if you go to the resource library, you can access the instructions on how to do this yourself. The first one is what I call worry balloons. And I love this technique. It's so much fun. It's one of my most favourite things when I go into schools and show children this or do it one to one. So, This works really well if we do it downstairs before our children go to sleep. And in essence, what we're trying to explain to our child is when we're worrying about something or we're getting caught up in a busy brain, it's like a balloon. We give air to these thoughts and the balloon gets bigger and bigger and bigger until eventually it would probably pop. Now, we don't want to do that for our child. We're not going to blow up a balloon to make it pop. But what we want to do is we want to explain that analogy and then we want to take a balloon and blow it up. Blow it up to a reasonable size, obviously depending on what type of balloon you have. And what you will then need is a permanent marker. And what you want to try and get your child to do is to almost download all of the things that are in their mind. It could be that you've got a child who's scared and worried about the dark. So actually they're worried about what they imagine to be in the dark. Or it may be you've got a child who's replaying the day and can't quite switch off or they're worrying in anticipation of the next day and they're thinking about things that might be happening. So blow up the balloon and with a permanent marker, it has to be permanent marker, it doesn't work with any other kind of pen. Get them to write or to draw and to brain dump everything that's in their head onto the balloon. So it can be words, it can be scribbles, it can be expressions, it can be sort of emojis, it can be situations and your child can fill up as much of the balloon as they want to or as little as they want. So what we've done is we've explained to them that when we get caught up in these thoughts, it's like we give air to these thoughts and to this busy brain and it gets bigger and bigger. Once they've finished drawing, you've been holding the balloon at this stage, you have not tied a knot. What you then want to say to your child is, what might happen if we simply let the balloon go? And of course, you let it go, it whizzes around the room, makes really funny farty noises and it's hilarious and then what you're left with is this sort of withered balloon but what's happened is and this is why this can be so powerful for children is you've taken what were 
huge worries, huge things that occupied your children's mind and their brain when the balloon was blown up. And as you've taken the air out of it, these things have become much, much smaller. And quite often, if children write sort of particularly neatly, the the writing just becomes so minute once the air's been taken out. And what's key to sort of emphasise here for our children is not that we've taken the worries away or the stress away, but by taking the air out of it, what we've done is we've managed to give it a bit more perspective. We've managed to look at it in the scale that it truly is. So that can be a really good way for your child to almost unpack, let go, park. We're not trying to kind of take, diminish the worries and say that we're not going to deal with them, but we're simply parking them downstairs. So when your child goes up, they're able to go to sleep because they've let that air out. And if you need to talk about some of these worries the next day, you can do, you can unpack them the next day or even unpack them downstairs before you go to bed. But really what we're trying to do is we're trying to keep the bedroom and going upstairs to bed as a stress-free scenario. Now, one warning that I would have with the worry balloons is whilst they are phenomenal and they work brilliantly, and with some children that I've worked with, it's almost been, it has become part of their bedtime routine to let these worry balloons go, is that because they're permanent markers, obviously as the as the air comes out of the balloon, the ink from the pen tends to kind of concentrate on the top so their fingers can get quite sticky, so just messy. So just make sure that they handle the balloon, avoiding the ink or get them just to wash their hands straight afterwards. So that's strategy number one. Strategy number two is about a worry box. Now, some of you may well have already made an investment with worry monsters. And, and they work in exactly the same way, but obviously a worry box is significantly cheaper than purchasing a worry monster. And what we're trying to do here, again, is help our child brain dump, take what's worrying them out of their head, put it on a piece of paper and post it through their worry box. And again, what we're doing is we're parking it. Let's take those worries out of our head. Let's write them down or draw them if we've got a young child or we can help them write them down. And by posting them, we're simply saying we're going to park them for tonight. We'll open up the worry box in the morning, take out the the worries. And if we need to talk about any of them, we can do. So it's really just an old shoebox that you cut a hole in the top and you give your child pieces of paper. So that's really good ways to help our children with busy brains in terms of sleep. Now, the last thing I want to look at, and very specifically, is this idea about teens and their sleep. What we need to be aware of is is as our children go through puberty and they, they get older and their bodies are going through some very big changes, is that their sleep patterns will naturally shift and that their sleep patterns can shift by up to six hours. I think it may even be longer than that. So in essence, a child that may have ordinarily gone to sleep at seven or eight could potentially want to shift their bedtime several hours later in terms of falling asleep and also several hours along in terms of waking up. Now, obviously, this is not compatible with our sleep, with our school systems. And so generally, what happens is we try and find some specific compromises. So we just need to understand that that A is a natural shift. It isn't that your child is being particularly difficult. It is a natural shift. But there are some things that our teens 
do and have by nature, devices being the biggest part, and a desire to communicate with their friends that can amplify an already innate natural shift in the time that they want to sleep. So with teens, the biggest challenge that we have when it comes to sleep is managing devices. Now we're going to do a whole separate podcast on how do we manage device use and tech use. But in the context of our teens, the advice is that we shouldn't be on devices for two hours before we go to sleep because of the blue, the light that's emitted from the from the screens. And as the mother of two older children now, I've had these conversations several times and you get you get given the sort of the point, well, you know, Apple or whatever your the phone might be have now created this special screen so we don't have all of this emitting emitting lights. For me, really, the conversation with our children is much more about actually how do we wind down? So I don't necessarily feel that you have to be super strict about the two hours, but I do believe that our children should be off devices for the hour before they go to bed. And I think that that's really important because if we have got teens with busy brains, if we have got worries and things that are going on in their head, if they are constantly distracted by their devices or as in in some cases with some teens needing to watch television episodes or programs on laptops in order to fall asleep, they're not able really to self-soothe themselves. So it's important that we have a compromise rule that tech is out of bedrooms an hour before they go to sleep. Now, I want to tackle a particular aspect about bedrooms when it comes to teens, because this is very specific to teens over and above younger children. So our teens will naturally want to spend more and more time in their bedrooms because they want to be on their own. And that is a normal part of growing up and becoming a teenager. But with our teenagers, what then happens is their bedrooms, when we're talking about sleep hygiene, when we talked earlier on, are no longer just bedrooms, they're sitting rooms, their bedrooms, their studies, their dining rooms, their movie watching rooms. So what's really important that we help our teens to do, we don't, you know, unless you've got You're very, very fortunate to have a very, very large house where our teens can have multiple rooms that they can go to and still have some time on their own. Then for most of us, our teens are going to basically have their bedroom serving multiple functions. So what's important that we do in that hour before our children, our teens are then going to sleep is that we encourage them to redress their room. Now, I know this might sound a bit ridiculous, or a little bit too too much, but it's so important. If our children have been watching films on their laptops in their bedrooms, or if they've been doing their work in their bedrooms, now sometimes that's the only option that we've got in terms of room. So if that is the case, then what we need to do is make sure that we almost redress the room so it goes from being the sitting room or the dining room or the or the sitting room and just becomes a bedroom. So that will mean putting devices away and taking them out of the room. If they've got a desk in their room, it might be about making sure that their papers are all tidied and organised and ordered and placed to one side or placed in a bag and taken out of the room. And that all of the things that might, like headphones and all of those various bits and pieces that might make it look like a sitting room or a study or a dining room, plates and all of those sorts of things, are then removed. This isn't about insisting that your child has their bedroom looking immaculate. 
for anyone who's listening who has got teens, you will know that their bedrooms become very interesting spaces, shall we say, with thick clothes strewn all over the place. It's not about that. It is much more about making sure that all of the items that would ordinarily be in a sitting room or a study are either removed if it's possible or placed neatly away. So the bedroom looks like a bedroom. And this might seem slightly ridiculous or frivolous, but I almost encourage you to encourage your teens to redress the room, leave the room and then walk back in. Because now you've shifted the energy, you've shifted the focus and the emphasis to a bedroom and now you've got a place that's conducive to sitting in bed with a light next to you and reading a book for a little bit if that's the way that they kind of decompress and get ready for the end of their day. So it's really important that we look at these aspects with our teens and explain to them why it's really important. You know, our our, our teens are coming up to academic years that matter with GCSEs and A-levels and studying and exams. And if they understand that our sleep is an important function of helping them with their learning, then this is one of the various different tools and strategies. I've not talked specifically about how many hours sleep your children need or what time their bedtime should be, because I do think that that's something that we need to decide as parents individually within our family and also for our children. As we know as adults, we don't all need lots and lots of sleep. We know optimally as an adult, we should be looking at getting between seven and eight hours sleep. But some of us function really well on less, some of us need more. So it's just being able to understand and work around what works for your family, what's important for your family and what does your child need. So I hope you feel you are better equipped now to tackle sleep and bedtime issues and at least begin to address one thing now. If you'd like access to my free resources, then as always, head over to drmaryhand.com forward slash library. And once you've popped in your email address, you'll be granted access to my free resource library, which has resources for every single podcast episode. And finally, if you've enjoyed this episode, I'd love it if you could subscribe, follow, review this podcast so that others can find us and we can spread the love. So until next time.